Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. This is a fun one. The timing here is good. We are in the midst of football frenzy in the United States. We are coming up on the Super Bowl. We just had an incredible weekend of the NFL's conference championship games to determine the two teams that are going to play in the Super Bowl. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's excited about it. And we are going to actually take a little side trip into an issue that continues to follow football. And that is the issue of chronic traumatic encephalopathy or the impact of repetitive head trauma on on players who play in the NFL, players who play football at a contact level for any period of time. It's something that's been in the news for several years now, and it remains a very sensitive subject. It remains a very fraught subject. So we're going to dive into that. Before we do that, just want to remind everybody, please come check out the website for Explore the Space. It's at www.explorethespaceshow.com. We've got our whole archive there. We've laid out the four pillars that kind of help us guide the learning that we have there. If you go on the website, you click on the about page, it'll take you to the four pillars and you can see what's there. Definitely take a look around and, and listen to whatever strikes your fancy. Definitely follow me on Twitter as well, at ETS Show. Very active on Twitter, very active on social media. Love interacting with people that are enjoying the show or listening to the show. So please come and check us out there. Whatever platform you like to download the show on, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Podcasts, please do leave us a review and a rating and definitely subscribe. Those are great ways to help boost the visibility of the show. And we really like to be able to know that we're making an impact helps other people find the show as well and leave feedback. If there's things that you're enjoying, let us know if there's things that we need to do better. Absolutely. Want to hear it and want to get better. And if there's guests that you want to hear more from same goes, let us know. You can also email me anytime mark at explore the space show.com. I will reply to all the emails that I get. And again, love interacting with people who are enjoying the show. We're doing great stuff here and it's, it's a absolute pleasure and a gift to get to interact with folks who are listening to the show. So circling back to to the introduction that I gave, the guest that I have on the show today, this is a fun one. Visar Barisha is an assistant professor of electrical computer and energy engineering at Arizona State University, and he focuses on speech and hearing science. He and I cross paths in the most wonderful and serendipitous way you could ever imagine. And now here we are recording a podcast together. He created this extraordinarily elegant study looking at declining language complexity in NFL players as a potential preclinical biomarker for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. He's here today to talk to us about this. Vassar, this is a real pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thanks for that very nice introduction. I'm uh, very happy to be here. So we are coming from a place of this, this interest in what's happening it's the most popular sport in the United States and it's not close. Football is, it's part of the culture here, but at the same time, there is this cloud that hangs over it. This issue of what is happening to people who participate in it. We've all seen the stories. We've all heard the, the, the tragic ends, the suicides, the, the, the changes in cognition, the depression, the, these things that are happening. And these are people that I grew up rooting for. I mean, I, all of these players that, that have been in the public eye around this, these are people that I was a fan of. I watched them play professional football. You created this study and we're going to talk about the study, but just, just start me from a place of your engineering background is 
is, is a robust one. How did you come to this topic? How did you even decide, I want to try to find a way to study what is going on with respect to chronic traumatic encephalopathy? Yeah, this is a great question. So, so my research interests here at ASU are, are, are certainly broader than that. What we're interested in, in, in doing in my lab here is developing robust digital biomarkers for neurological decline in general, um, and, and really with a focus on speech and language. It's, it's interesting. I think a lot of people take speech and language for granted, the complexity associated with it. But if you think of how complicated it is, you know, just to, to generate the speech that I'm generating right now, I have to first think of some idea to convey, express that idea using a set of words, sequence them in some order that is uh, allowed by the language, and then send signals to the muscles that produce the speech. So if there's a disturbance in, in, in this sort of distributed neural network that facilitates this pro process, you can notice it in the output speech signal. So really, the, the, the focus of the research that I do is, is what can you say about the neurological health of the speaker based on the output speech signal? Uh, you can get at information related to, to motor control, for example, by looking at whether or not the speech is slurred, um, measures of cognition by looking at how uh, the speaker is using language and how that's changing as a function of time. And, and this is uh, applicable across several different neurological diseases. So to get back to your question, um, the, the focus on, on, on NFL players and, and CT in general was really one that was a function of data availability. I had a student that was a, a, a fan of football and, and uh, he was interested in studying the effects on cognition on existing players, those that are currently uh, still playing and active. And, and you, you know, several of the NFL teams actually make publicly available pre- and post-game transcripts for different players. And so it was access to data. It was expertise that we had in-house, and, and we wanted to see what the results would be, and the results were, I think, quite interesting. It's fascinating the way that you frame the, the origin story of this, though. I love it. Your lab is, focus, is functioning as an incubator, right? You've created this dynamic where you're going to study vocabulary, speech pathways, and, and the ways that we generate our speech. And can we reflect that backwards? Can we use that as a tool to look at any sort of neurodegenerative disease? That is, that's the incubator. And then you have the student who comes in and says, look, I, I see what's going on in the, in the press. I see what's going on with football, the sport that I enjoy. Can we use this? Can we, can we, can we fit that into the model? And yes, and it works. And, and, and I think that setting up that incubator philosophy, is that something that you take into your research? Is that, is that, an, is that an intentional approach? Yeah, it, it's very much intentional. I mean, if, if uh, th this was a really an interdisciplinary collaboration, this was in, in collaboration with Julie Liss, who was one of the co-authors on, on the paper. And she, her background is, is speech science and really it's speech neuroscience and, and uh, my combination in speech, my uh, expertise in speech analytics combined with her combination in speech neuroscience allowed us to identify these sort of candidate digital biomarkers for different neurogenic diseases and, and then apply them to the study in, in question here. And, and you know, your, your use of the word incubator is an interesting one because that's precisely what, what, um, what we've done. We've really looked at how these digital biomarkers perform under different conditions 
in our respective labs here at ASU. And now we're actually in the process of, of translating them to the clinic through a, a, a startup company that we've, we've co-founded. It's just tremendous. And so we fuse these two robust skill sets within the world of neuroscience to create this paper. So let's talk about the study a little bit. Sorry, the paper was published in Brain and Language in June of 2017. The title of the paper, it's lofty. I love the titles of, of academic papers. Longitudinal Changes in Linguistic Complexity Among Professional Football Players. So take us, take us inside. Take us inside the front cover of Brain and Language. Take us underneath longitudinal changes in, in linguistic complexity among professional football players. It's hard even just to say. Talk us through what are we looking at here? What is the study design? And then we can talk a little bit about what you find. Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, we pride ourselves in, in, in having uh, lofty titles. So, so I'm we glad. do, don't we? I know. If it's not a lofty title that's incredibly difficult to understand, it's, it's going to be an acronym. So it's something like siesta or accord or something big and bold, especially in the cardiovascular literature. They always do that. They're good at it. Yes, indeed. So, so the study itself was really sort of going back to basics. The, the question is, what are the changes in language that you would expect to observe as a result of a change in, in um, some aspect of cognition. And there's a, a, a vast literature out there that has studied changes in language resulting from uh, dementia due to Alzheimer's disease, other forms of dementia, uh, frontotemporal dementia. And, and we surveyed that literature and identified two markers of language that consistently showed up as, as uh, changing as a result of some some uh, underlying some some form of dementia, and, and so we and, and those two in particular were were uh, a proxy for vocabulary size. So the number of unique words that a person uses to express him or herself as they're speaking, and the second is is the 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 content density or the idea density, the number of unique ideas that are expressed in in language. So it's word choice. So the, the, the richness of the vocabulary, and then it's the uniqueness of the ideas. Did I, did I consolidate that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is really a good way to, to, to think about this, okay. the, the, the density of ideas and, and the uniqueness of, of words. Got it. You, you could think of someone that has a rich vocabulary, you know, that have a very large number of uh, unique words and, and someone that's expressing multiple ideas that have high idea density. Okay. In, in their uh, spoken words. So we know that in the general population, these are parameters that you would expect to increase over the years. So you really wouldn't expect, for example, to see declines in vocabulary size um, until well past the age of, of 80 in healthy individuals. But we also know that there's a lot of variability among different individuals. So, uh, you know, my vocabulary size is different from from uh, my friends and from yours. And so there exist these uh, interperson differences. And so as a result, what we wanted to do is look at how a particular person changes over time. Since we know that in healthy individuals, you would expect a increase or sort of a flattening in say vocabulary size um, after the age of, of 40 or 50, any decline would be deemed unusual unless it was in a population of, of individuals well past the age of 80, for example. So that's the key piece. At 50, we should be, if nothing else, plateauing, but we should not be seeing a decrement. We should be at least flat. That's exactly right. Yeah, okay. That's exactly right. 
So with the study, we aim to really look at two groups. We looked at players in the National Football League, so players that were active in the National Football League and had provided transcripts in pre- and post-game interviews over time. And this so is open-source material. This is stuff that the NFL teams are providing uh, forward-facing on their websites. You can go and anyone can go and grab this material. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. So anyone can go and download this material and, and, uh, and, and look at it themselves. So we went back in time and, and looked at all of the data that was available since the year 2007, I believe. That was the first time that these transcripts were uh, made available online. And for each transcript, for each player, we analyzed these two measures of language complexity over time. So we analyzed how the vocabulary size was changing over time and how idea density was changing over time. And we did this for the NFL players, but we also did it for a group of coaches and front office executives in the NFL who have never played professional football. So same uh, procedure, same methods for both groups. And what we did was we looked at the change, the decline or increase in language complexity parameters over time for the two groups. Now, what you would expect to see again is, is slopes or changes uh, over time that were relatively flat or hopefully increasing for, for the younger group, but that's not what we saw. Let's just talk briefly. How much time did it take from the idea flash to, okay, let's, and then executing, getting started and going to when you're sitting down and crunching data and you're looking now at the graphs that are tracking these two fields, how much time elapsed from, from beginning to here's our data set, here's the graphs, here's our findings. Yeah. You know, this is, this is a pretty large data set. So if you look at the amount of data in, yeah. in total, about a, a thousand hours. Okay. Approximately of interviews, and, and, and what was that? What's the end size, right? We have to use a little bit of our nomenclature. What was the the number in each arm of the the NFL players, and then the front office executives and commentators? What were that sort of that would be like the placebo group? What was the end in, in both arms? So there were ten players in in the player group, obviously, and eighteen coaches and front office executives in in uh, the control group. Okay. So we would, I mean, this is a smaller study. This is a, this is a smaller study to, to kind of look at a hypothesis and see if there's value in pursuing the hypothesis. Is that a fair way to characterize it? Yeah, that's absolutely fair. So I think the purpose of the study here, and you, you could even call it a case study, yeah. was really to, to set the stage for, for conducting a larger perspective study to, to test this hypothesis. That's right. That's right. Um, and that's our yeah. scientific method, right? You, you put a hypothesis forward, you test it, is it valid? And then you decide, do we go bigger? So that brings us to the key question. What did you find? What were the things that when you guys sat around at a conference table and said, okay, let's review our data and look at our hypothesis and see what we got. What did you, what, what came out of that discussion? What came out of the discussion was something quite interesting. So you, you if you look at the paper, there's a, a graph where we plot the slopes, the changes over time in these language complexity parameters for the two groups. And you see this almost diverging groups for the coaches and the front office executives. You saw slopes that were either uh, near zero, in other words, no change over time, or positive, an increase in language complexity parameters over time. Whereas for the player group, you see exactly the opposite. There were some players that were near zero and showing no changes over time, but there was another cohort that really showed a, a negative trend over time. So you see these declining language complexity parameters. 
decreases in vocabulary size over time, decreases in idea density over time. And, and this is, you know, just to, to highlight this again, because I don't think it can be overstated, this is highly unusual for a group in, in, of individuals in their 20s or 30s. Um, you know, there's normative data out there to suggest that these parameters should be increasing well in, into the 40s or even 50s and then plateauing. When I looked at the study myself and I looked at that graph, and we'll have a link to it available so people who are listening to the show can look at it, it is striking. There, there's no debate. I mean, you keep in the back of your mind, small study and numbers are small. That is not, th- these graphs diverge, these lines diverge dramatically. It, and it's one of those things where you look at it and you're like, boy, that's a, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a significant finding. And it's something that we need to spend a little time thinking about. When you saw it, what was your own personal thought? Like, oh boy, this, is, this might be a big deal. Eh, maybe not. Or ah, this is a nothing. Where were you on that spectrum? You, you know, I, I think the very first thing that we asked our student to do was to go back and look at all the data again from the beginning. Yeah. And, and to, to redo the analysis just to make sure that this was indeed the case. But as we started to, di- to, to do a deeper dive into the data, it became clear that the results were the results. And then it, it you know, it, it came down to, to trying to interpret them. I guess I want to, to highlight here the hypothesis, and it really is only a hypothesis, it's not confirmed by the study, was that the, it's the uh, repeated head trauma that caused this, this change in these language complexity parameters. But, you, you know, there could be other reasons why these two groups diverge as well. For example, for whatever reason, some, some difference in the way that players versus coaches and front office executives interact with the media um, those are things that are impossible to, to control in a, in a case study like this. But there's certainly some evidence that results from this paper that, that uh, indicates that, you know, language complexity should, should at least be further studied as a, a harbinger of, of, of CTE or, or, or uh, TBI, traumatic brain injury. So you're 18 months out from publication. What's been the response? What happened? Did it cause, did you throw a boulder in a still pond? Did it not, did nothing happen? Where, where are we in terms of people hearing about the paper, seeing it? Brain and language is not, it, you know, it's not one of the biggest journals out there. It's not, you know, it's not Sports Illustrated. It's not Time Magazine. Where, where did this land? And I don't mean that to diminish your accomplishment, but I mean, we just, in terms of size and scope, where did this sort of land? Yeah, it's sort of interesting. The uh, you're right. The the average the average individual doesn't pick up brain and language and read it. The study was picked up by by the science section of the New York Times. So there's a a nice article there, and we had several um, individuals that that requested uh, additional information on on the study and and uh, and actually one of the the principal outcomes of the study has been has been this this design of the prospective study to mm-hmm. test. Yeah, yeah. Define is a harbinger for for CT or could possibly be used as a return to play metric for concussion. So we've been working with the NCAA and, and Arizona State University here to actually integrate, you know, carefully designed speech elicitation tasks for um, all and all players in in college football here on the ASU team, uh, both at, at baseline and then following any concussion events. So we're, we're hopeful that that goes live this year. We're in the, in the planning process of that study right now. So I, I want to pick up that thread. I think that that is really the, 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 the kernel of, of some real genius here is that up to this point, everything around cr- chronic traumatic encephalopathy has been postmortem. These are autopsy findings. Right. What you're describing is something that we can use upstream 
as potentially a predictive model if someone is interested in that, but also that idea of return to play, having a tool, having a, a metric to say for any sport, potentially, are you safe to return to play? Because that is such a big controversial topic, whether it's football or any other sport involving you know contact with the head. These are two very important things. And I wonder if, was that the intent? Were you thinking we can really move the needle now that we see that we've got this hypothesis that looks like it's got some merit, we can, we can really implement this on, on something that is really important. Yeah. Th- this was the idea from early on, you know, yeah. one, one of the wonderful things uh, about working with speech and language is that there's lots of data available. And, and so I mentioned uh, at the beginning of this podcast that one of the reasons that we did the study was because of data availability. Well, now I think that the results of the study were uh, sort of sufficiently uh, uh, compelling that, that different prospective studies are interested in including speech and language as a potential biomarker of CTE or, or, or concussion or as a return to play metric. So that was, that was really the, uh, the, the goal from the onset. And, and, you know, one thing that I'll, I'll, you mentioned this comment about, about uh, difficulty associated with, with detecting early signs of CTE or detecting early signs of concussion. Uh, one of the wor- wonderful things about technology and is, is the fact that we can record these very precise uh, uh, signals using sensors that are in our pockets, in our cell phones. And uh, furthermore, you can detect subtle changes over time, subtle concerning changes over time rather rapidly, something that to date we haven't been able to, to really do. I mean, in neurology, for example, the, the, the state of the art in, in, in uh, uh, diagnosis is, is, is really functional rating scales, right? Questionnaires. So being able to integrate these digital biomarkers within the context of of uh, uh, early detection or return to play, I think, you know, there's real benefit in that. You had mentioned that Arizona State has picked up on this and that's the university that you're affiliated with. Was that something where they came to you and said, we want this tool, come and work with us, let's get this going? Was it, did you have to convince them? What was that level of receptivity? Because you could, you could conceive that they might argue both different, both directions, right? They might say, absolutely not, we want nothing to do with this or Oh my gosh, this is exactly what we've been looking for and let's get started. Yeah, so so I, I guess just to, to sort of uh, level set, this isn't the only study that we've had in this in this area and, and so w- when you look at the body of work that suggests that changes in speech and language are uh, are, are useful objective proxies for uh, neurological disease, it doesn't take a whole lot of convincing. I mean, that yeah. you, you know, it comes very uh, clear rather rapidly. So, uh, so it didn't take a lot of convincing and they were very receptive to it. So then that follows, have you been in contact or do you plan to be in contact with the national football league or have they reached out to you? We've had some contact with the NFL and and the NFL PA, but it it hasn't led anywhere and it's not something that we're actively pursuing. I think we're uh, starting small. I think starting with the uh, NCAA is appropriate. There, there's this NCAA DOD study that's ongoing for uh, looking at at, uh, uh, at validating different biomarkers for concussion, for example. We're, we're slowly working our way towards um, uh, integrating that study. 
and and that's the approach that we've taken. Sure, no, that makes perfect sense. Have you had have you had players reach out to you? Have you had anyone independently reach out and say, "I would like to be included in the next phase of all of this"? Yeah, we've had professional athletes reach out to us. Yeah, uh, been a bit. Um, I, I think more in the context of you know, I'm a former player and like some some help in in determining whether we can track these signs that internally I think I'm experiencing. But, uh, you, you know, that's an avenue we haven't decided to pursue yet. We think it's pretty much shorter. And in this original study with this, the, there's the study arm again that we talked about, right, where you looked at NFL players. What has been the conversation with those players? Obviously, they know that, look, these things are forward facing and they're in the they're in the public record. Have you had conversations with any of those players around what you found? I know you aren't able to disclose who those players are, but have you had any conversations with them? So not with the players in the study. In fact, we were careful in the study to anonymize who the players were. And so, uh, so it, it would be difficult to, for, for individuals to know that, you know, which player is associated with, with which uh, subject. For gotcha. And, and I don't know who the players were either. So it's not like it's this player was the quarterback for a major football team in the city of Miami in the 1980s. I'm, you know, I'm a Dolphins fan, so I'm going to go with Dan Marino. You, you don't like cloak it like that where they could figure it out. It's just here's some people who played in the NFL. Right. Yeah, we did our best to turn on the mic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which makes which makes perfect sense for sure. So it's interesting what you've done here. And it's fascinating to look at what may come. If It's fun to speculate, right? As a scientist, that's not necessarily your job. Your job is to prove things. But when you sit and you're, you're hanging out at the end of the day and you're, you're relaxing a little bit and you start to speculate around what may come next, what do you think may come next from the work that you're doing? Yeah, there's there's been so many things that, that have come out of it already. I, I mentioned we've translated some of this work in clinic already. So we're yeah. working. With uh, large pharmaceutical companies and and, uh, and the Mayo Clinic and Barrow Neurological Institute, where they're using this technology that we've developed to monitor outcomes remotely. Uh, so so you, for example, patient populations with with ambulatory constraints, like patients with ALS, for example, rather than having them come in clinic for for visits, you provide them with a mobile app that they can use to provide speech samples, and from from those samples, you provide you know, clinically useful information about their neurological health. And so, so we're doing that right now. Now in the, in the future, if, if we allow ourselves to, to dream and we think about a sci-fi world, we, we can think about a world in which the devices that we interact with every day become brain health monitors. And, and not just those that have speakers like your phone or Alexa or Siri, uh, but rather uh, uh, devices that you require that are tablets as well, right? So speech is only one modality. Um, you can think of, of, of uh, uh, motion and, and, and pressure. All of these sensors that are included in the devices that we use every day that have the potential to provide clinically useful information, have the potential for early diagnosis, and have the potential for, for sort of persistent tracking of of uh, neurological health, so I, I, I I'm excited about what the future holds. I think there's some important problems that need to be solved, but but I'm very excited about what the future holds. That's one of the things about this sort of incubator idea that I like too is that with you focused on one piece of this big puzzle, but I I agree with you in 
thinking this through a little bit and spending some time before you and I had the chance to speak about it, I think that the implications, the stuff that's going to really make a difference really on like a population level are going to be, does this apply in the setting of, as you mentioned, traumatic brain injury as a marker of recovery, as a marker of progress when someone is going through their acute rehabilitation? Is it a diagnostic tool for people with cognitive dysfunction? Is it a, a, a tool that we can use to track progress, to check child development? I mean, it, it, it really ripples in a lot of different directions. And if you have a model that we can replicate and we prove works, uh, it's it, it, not to overstate, but it feels like, you know, this is one of the little keys that has to go into the lock in Pandora's box. <laughs> well, so I haven't heard it described that way, but uh, uh, that, that's a that's a nice description. I'll certainly take it. It's interesting. The, the the technical challenges associated with conducting this research are, I think, not quite as vast as as some of the challenges around gathering data, challenges right. around distilling what is the clinically useful information in these signals. And, and how do you present it in a way that that clinicians, neurologists, doctors can can use it to, to improve patient outcomes? It's engineers and myself included are, are often caught up in, in in performance metrics and and trying to, to to improve the technical performance of some piece of technology. I think here this this whole idea of digital biomarkers represents kind of a unique uh, opportunity for for interdisciplinary collaboration between. Uh, neurologists and engineers and 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 speech neuroscientists and 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 uh, folks that are that have expertise in health policy. It's and it's actually something that the the College of Health Solutions here at ASU, with whom I'm, I'm affiliated, is is actively working towards. So it's it's great to be at a place that that is forward thinking and and very happy to be conducting this research. And I think what you just said too is very important. That in order to get it to that lofty goal, right? You and I speak in kind of really excited and, and, and hyperbolic terms around what this could do, it's going to need that interdisciplinary investment. It's not going to be just your lab. It's not going to be just NFL players. It's going to be neurologists and social scientists and every level that it would would be required to make this into something scalable if we're even able to prove that it works. But this is a really important foothold in doing that work. Yeah, no, this this is precisely right. This is precisely right. I think um, I, I'm also I'm also excited about the possibilities of of industry and academia collaborations. Yeah, I think this is a, an area where where you could have a tremendous synergy. You have large pharma companies, for example, gather data at a scale and with a level of of control and precision that is just impossible to do for a, a small startup company or for, for a university. And on the other hand, you have expertise at the university that, uh, um, that allows you to, to analyze these data sets using methods that, that large pharma companies may not have access to, using that as an example. So, so I, I really think that this, that this is, is truly an interdisciplinary effort that, that will be required to, to, to bring this to market. And speaking of interdisciplinary engagement, I think that it's important that you and I kind of share a little bit about how we even got connected to have this conversation because I think it's illustrative of the same concept. I am not a reader of brain and language. I am not a subscriber. I have the magazines that I like and that I subscribe to. And I had not even heard of brain and language magazine, though when I saw it existed, I wasn't surprised. 
I was listening to a podcast that I enjoy, and it was a podcast where Bill Simmons and Malcolm Gladwell were talking, and they have these wonderful episodes. They'll interview each other like once or twice a year, and they go on all these wild tangents, and Malcolm Gladwell mentions this study, and he says, I can't remember the name of the study, and I can't remember the author, but here's what they studied, and he described your paper. And as I listened, I was like, that is, that's interesting. I got to find that paper. So I went on PubMed and thank God for the PubMed courses that I took in medical school and learning how to use Boolean search terms. And I found it and it didn't actually take me very long. And I pinged you, I emailed you and that was that. And I just love that story so much because I would have missed this completely. Um, And that little interaction then ended with, you, I think, sent a message to Malcolm Gladwell and he retweeted it. And you and I were like virtually high-fiving via text. And I was like, oh my God, Malcolm Gladwell saw this. So I, th- I just love that story. Yeah, it really is a great story. And you know what I appreciated about the description of the study in that podcast? Because I went back and listened to it after I got your email. Was the precision with which Malcolm Gladwell described the study. Yeah, yeah. It, so I uh, I immediately went on Twitter and I, I provided a link to the study and, and thanked them for, for taking the time to read it. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, you, you know, certainly one of the benefits of that was that you and I got to connect. Absolutely. And what I would love to see happen is as this moves forward, that he circles back with you and does one of his extraordinary revisionist history episodes in your lab, because he's done episodes where he focuses on language. And he did that amazing one on parapraxia and Elvis. And when I heard that one, that was after you and I had started having conversations. I was like, oh, he's got to get Vishar on his show. Like this, it's just, it's a natural fit. It has to happen. Yeah. You know, hopefully he listens to this podcast. That's right. And- <laughs> That's right. Hopefully he listens to the show. This has been really, really interesting. You, you're you're onto something. You are onto something. And hearing you describe it is it's illuminating and it's exciting, man. Science sometimes it just it sparks that interest in everybody because I, you're onto something. And this is going to be an interesting journey that you get to go on for you know the what I hope gets to be a long and very very fruitful career. So. Thank you so much for coming on and spending a little time with us and and sharing this incredible work that you're really just starting out with. Well, thank you for taking the time uh, to interview me and I, I really had a good time today. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.